welcome to Kingwood United Methodist Church. Thank you for joining us today. Wherever you're listening from and whatever service you're listening to, we strongly believe because of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, there is always more to life. We are in a series entitled Pursuing Perfection. And we have specifically taken dead aim as a team of clergy about this concept that in order for life to be good, we have to borrow the imagery of it being a perfect life as defined by the world. That we have the perfect car, the perfect family, the perfect relationships, and everything is wonderful. And we have this sort of mask that we put on, and church becomes a place where we sort of come to parade like Easter hats are fact that we think we have it all together. Let me remind you the words of Leonard Sweet in his book Nine when he said, everybody's got skeletons in the closet, it's just that some of us have taught them how to dance. Don't you love that imagery, right? So the church becomes a place where we encounter God authentically with who we are, fully with who we are, and we bring alongside of that part of our United Methodist heritage where John Wesley really presses in and challenges on the heels of the Reformation the idea that we can be made perfect in love. Picking up the imagery from Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, where Jesus says, you ought to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But the word perfect has so much baggage to it, but defined by the world, but what it means in both the Aramaic and the Greek, the two most common vernaculars of Jesus' day, is that perfect is not like what we think of everything being perfect. Perfect is a sense of being whole, needing nothing more. And so what Wesley, the founder of Methodism, says is you can be made whole in love and that there may be fleeting moments, but there's a moment when all the world is perfectly right and they still haven't given me permission to show pictures of my grandson, but when I can get those up, I will show you what the perfect world looks like, right? No, they, they do. I just know that if I ever start down that path, I'll never be able to get off it. So there, there are glimpses of moments when you know the world is right. There, there are glimpses of moments when you see in the midst of what's happening in natural disasters, you look around when all has been stripped away by hurricane or tornado, and you say, why can't we behave like this with each other when there is no natural disaster, Right? All the strippings of the world are pulled away and you simply realize there's one race. It's called the human race, colored by many hues. So when we talk about pursuing perfection, what we're talking about is creating space within your heart and your life for God's Holy Spirit to move and to be present and to fill you. And today we want to talk about identity identity. Last week we launched the idea of what does it mean to be made perfect or whole, creating space in our hearts. You still have struggles and heartaches. You still make bad decisions, but increasingly as you create a capacity and space within your heart, you create the ability to respond more readily to the Holy Spirit. And today we want to talk about our identity as individuals. I can remember growing up that my mother used a couple of phrases, a couple of which I could actually use in church um, when I was in high school, one of which has always stuck with me, is that whenever I would leave, she would say, remember who you are 
and that you cannot be replaced. Remember who you are and that you cannot be replaced. Church, I want to suggest that we have absorbed too much of the culture's definition of what gives us value in who we are in our identity as children of God. And Peter writes, if you actually have your Bible with you, you can look. You can look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, and Peter says clearly, I'm writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. He's saying, look, you're dispersed, you're foreigners, but I'm writing to you. And the key theme of 1 Peter is found in verse 8. He says, you love Christ even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust Christ and you rejoice with a glorious and inexpressible joy. Because this salvation was something even the prophets wanted you to know about. So as you hear Peter, he is constantly going to draw the imagery back to the Old Testament covenant of God reaching and gathering his people, claiming them. So whenever you see Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, you find that Peter begins with the people who were gathered in their context. And so, friends, we come today from many places in various addresses. And when we get to verse 10, I'm going to pause and we're all going to speak that together. But the other imagery I want you to pay close attention to is how this passage begins in this text. You're going to hear the imagery of stone, right? Capture in your memory, a, if you've seen the picture of the western wall in Jerusalem, right? Physical locations were important for the Hebrew Jewish people. And the imagery that's being cast here is as important as a physical location was, there is a more important location no matter where you are physically. Because remember, Peter is writing to the Christians that are dispersed in different places. The most important place is not where you are physically, but where your heart is in relationship to God. So he's going to use this imagery and use this context and use these metaphors so that we can understand how deeply we are loved by God. Out of respect to God's word, I'll invite you to stand as you are able, please. Follow along in reading verses, verses 4 through 9, and then I will pause for us to read together verse 10. The text is on the screen, also in your pewback Bible, or if you brought your Bible with you, or your Bible app. Hear now the word of the Lord. You're coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for a great honor. You, and you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priest. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God, as the scriptures say, I'm placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honor, and anyone who trusts him will never be disgraced. Yes, you who trust him recognize the honor God has given him. 
But for those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And he is the stone that makes people stumble and the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word. And so they meet the fate that was planned for them. But you are not like that. For you, you are a chosen people. You are royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. And together now let us speak these words. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. This is the word of God for you and me, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated now, and as you are, let us pray together. May your spirit, O God, stand between me and your people so that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together will be shaped, formed, and molded into the good news of the gospel of Christ, in whose name we gather, in whose name we pray, and in whose name we will depart and seek to serve you faithfully. And all of God's people did say, Amen. Many years ago, there was a big trend in the 1990s that came forth called servant leadership. And that has always captured my imagination. And I think one of the downfalls of the whole theory of servant leadership was you had people at the pinnacle of their organization saying that they are servant leaders. And I can remember Bishop Bruce P. Blake making the presentation to a group of gathered clergy and one clergy who was near retirement. And Jim Welch can tell you once you get near retirement and then once you get in retirement, you say in your lips to bishops the things you've always been thinking in your heart. Can I get a witness? Amen. And this near retired clergy who had nothing to lose stood up in a forum of some 200 clergy and said, hey, Bishop. When's the last time you scrubbed the toilet in a local church? (laughs) And I was captured by it, and I thought, what's wrong with this imagery? And here's the problem. The problem for me is this, and I hope this makes sense to you. I break the world down in two basic components as an individual. I have an identity as an individual that comes from the waters of my baptism, is claimed by Christ, and I profess my faith to follow him. That is my identity. I have a role that I live out in the life of the church. And the problem for me was people in leadership were trying to superimpose a sort of comparative value in the roles that they play when the reality is when we talk about servant leadership, it should come at the core of your identity. So no matter where you serve in an organization, you don't compare what you do to others. You serve others. You live that biblical imagery to always view and see others as higher than yourself. Now, folks, if you, if you don't have anything going on Wednesday night, and even if you do, I implore you to look at your schedule and join us on Wednesday nights as we walk through the book of Ephesians because 
the book of Ephesians that we are walking through in 12 weeks. We are going to study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, to unpack what does God's word proclaim to us mean about our identity in Christ. But know this, friends. If you don't think about servant leadership, you need to think about your identity. And I like to say it this way. My identity and my value and my worth is found in the waters of my baptism. My role in the life of the church is as an ordained elder. To put it bluntly, my job, J-O-B, at which I should be evaluated like at any other place. Let me ask, do y'all have performance evaluations in your workplace? You probably do, don't you, right? Maybe you're a five to 10. Maybe you have to do this or that. You've got to have your personal growth plan. I don't, you know, seven steps of it or three things of that. Look, I got a job in the staff parish relationship, the staff parish relations committee should literally look at every one of us as a staff and clergy and say, do your job. And if you're not doing your job, they should challenge us because people don't do their job for three reasons. They don't know what their job is. They haven't been equipped for their job or they just don't want to do their job. It's those three and there's nothing else, right? That's the role. And I am accountable to a group of people and how I do my job, but that is not my identity. You see, we get, the, we get it backwards. We, we, we gather a role in society. We have some sort of thing that we do. And then we filter that like a mirror saying, here's my worth. Now here's my value because I have this place in my organization, or here's my worth and here's my value because of what others say about me. Hear this truth. Your identity is not even in your spiritual gift. It's not how you perform. It's not how you please God. It's not even how much you give. Your value and your worth is because you were created and loved by God. And from the waters of the baptism, you have been claimed by God. Your identity is his child. How you choose to live is your choice. And this is where it gets a little sticky. And if I'm stepping on your toes, I'm aiming at your heart. Has, I don't know, we've got two kids, they're grown. But if I go back in my memory, and I think we've all either been a child or are a parent. That covers 100% of the congregation. If you're not aware, you've either been a child or you are a parent. And either as a child or as a parent, you either did the disappointing or you had been disappointed in a certain action of your child. Or something you did disappointed those who were your parents. It did not change their love for you. But it did break their heart. Or it did disappoint them. There are ways in which we fail to live into our identity, but that never changes God's love for us in Christ. From the moment you came from the waters of your mother's womb or the waters of your baptism, God has said, you are mine. I just need you to love me back. John 15, verse 16 clearly says, You did not choose me. I chose you. And so Paul captures the imagery of two significant aspects in this text. First, the text being drawn out of the Old Testament narrative and memory that when people were exiled and taken into captivity, God still pursued them and God still loved them even though their circumstances made it difficult to understand where God was. God still was with them. And he points their hearts back to this 
physical location of Jerusalem and the importance of a physical structure which is not there today was destroyed in AD 70, the temple in Jerusalem. Thanks again for joining us for today's message. We will return to the sermon in a moment, but first, we would like to ask for you to rate, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We believe God is doing some amazing things here at KUMC, and your feedback helps our church to reach new listeners that we wouldn't otherwise be able to reach. Now, let's get back to the work. imagery on its ear. In the same way last week, you remember with the Dr. Pepper Zero I had in a sponge and talked about how a dry sponge will soak up that, that liquid and it will be saturated and then, then there's nothing left for it to soak up. The only way a sponge can be useful is if it is wrung out, if it is emptied of all its contents. And we make ourselves available to be wrung out and clearing space in our lives for God. And so you are the living stones. Paul says clearly in the opening in verse 4, rejected by people, chosen by God. There's the trajectory of your choices. Rejected by people or chosen by God. And when I hear that phrase too often, I think we forget that when we try to win the approval of the world and the people around us, we most often disappoint God because we forget our identity and our value that binds us to the one who created us. And in our culture, even within the life of the church, yes, grace abounds. Paul says clearly, should I keep sinning because I can always be forgiven? No, that's not the way it works. And the church has mastered the art of talking about grace and forgiveness in many ways. At least in the United Methodist Church, we have so mastered grace that we have forgotten to call people to accountable lives in Christ. Now, some other denominations have so mastered condemnation, they've forgotten the word grace. But what I want to encourage you to think about is the imagery in verse 8 that Paul captures that in, in Christ, who is the cornerstone, some people stumble. The, the verse says, they stumble because they do not obey God's word. Did you hear that? They stumble because they do not obey God's word. It didn't say they stumble because they don't know God's word. It says they stumble because they don't obey. Obedience, a sense of surrendering our life to the teaching of Scripture at the core of our identity and following the biblical witness for our lives, we stumble because we don't listen and we don't follow. The second part of verse 8 says this, and so they meet the fate that was planned for them. Now, when I read that text and we set the series up, I realized I needed to sort of highlight that and we need to unpack its meaning in its literary structure. Some would say this is sort of like a sinners in the hands of an angry God kind of moment, right? You stumble and by golly, God planned to put a whooping on you because you stumbled. No, what, what God has set forth is his reach to us, his call to us, and when we stumble, there is a consequence to stumbling. That's the way the plan works. May I suggest to you that the greatest enemy of the Christian faith is 
the American cultural concept that you can have, you can make a choice that has no consequences. You can make a choice that has no consequences. And that's nowhere supported biblically. They stumble. You, me, we stumble. We stumble because we forget who we are and we fail to obey and listen. And we let the pressures of the outside outside world determine our values and inform our choices. And we silently say, well, I know that God will forgive me. And we look the other way. Church, God's calling us back to a place of faithful obedience from the waters of our baptism, knowing we've been chosen and loved by God. It is um, it's a delicate thing for me to assume that I know what your struggles are. And if any way what I'm about to share with you seems to dismiss a struggle or devalue your pain, I tell you that is not my intent. My intent is to inspire you to hear the challenge of Scripture to live in the reality that you are called in Christ to be God's witnesses to the world. But every one of us borrows something from the world around us to inform our decisions And every one of us is going to be faced with a moment where we're going to have to decide, is what we've borrowed worth what we've sacrificed? Is what we've borrowed worth what we've sacrificed? And we will have to make a decision about who we choose to be. It was in 1936 that August Landmesser pledged his allegiance to the Nazi Regime because he thought that would uh, help his standing. And he only found out later that that superficial political affiliation could not compare to the amount of love he found in a woman named Irma Eckler, who was a Jewish woman. Now, do you know the problem that's about to come, don't you? Became a Nazi. Pledged his allegiance because he thought it would do good for his career. Love overtook his heart. His engagement got him expelled from the Nazi party. And you can imagine, put a little bit of a target on him. He was in actually the shipyards And a man named Hitler came by. And everybody else in the crowd did what? I'm not even going to say it. You know what it is. Don't say it. You know, what it. you know what everybody else was doing. Circled in red. Circled in red with his arms folded is August Linderman, who chose in that day not to join the crowd. My friends, do you see any uniforms that are military in that group? There's a guy in a suit, people dressed nicely. You remember a couple weeks ago when we talked about 
the yod of the arm, right? So this is your yod, and don't have your yod folded, have it open to God. Let me tell you, today I'm telling you as pastor, I want to challenge you that when the world invites you to salute the things of this world, I want you to fold your yod. From the palm of your hand to your elbow, fold them. Don't salute the things of this world and have courage. And know this, that level of conviction led both August Linderman and his wife Irma to their death. Their children eventually were rescued out of concentration camps. But in 1950, their marriage was finally recognized after all had been stripped away from them. Friends, there's things in this world in subtle ways in the comforts of our culture that invite our salute, that invite us to casually acknowledge and honor. Will you be a people that digs deeply into the scriptures? Will you remember who you are and what defines who you are? And will you remember this truth, that the value of the cultures around us, no matter how popular they may seem, will always leave us empty? Because Christ, the chief cornerstone, is the only one who can make you whole. Because once you had no identity, and now you're God's people. Once you're in a place that you've received no mercy, now you've received God's mercy and God's forgiveness. Don't forget who you are and that you cannot be replaced. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Now, usually uh, you'd be thinking about where you're going for brunch, and we'd sort of wrap up worship, and you're thinking, hot dog preacher, we're out here early today. I still got seven minutes, I'm going to use every one of them. (laughs) Don't you know that, right? Um, We as a pastor's team have have really struggled this week. Um, There's layers of connection through the military with our pastoral team. There's layers of connection with missionaries um, of what's been happening in Afghanistan. Uh, usually at this time, um, we're making an invitation to church membership. We're um, getting ready for a, a great hymn of clothes. And um, typically the acolyte, pastor, lay member comes in. We take the light of Christ ahead of us out, a world following the benediction. But my friends, today is not going to be a typical day. In response to what's happening to our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church, as most com- uh, clearly illustrated in the people of Afghanistan, today we extinguish these altar candles, acknowledging that it's not just the light of Christ that goes into the world each day, but today these extinguished can- candles represent the voices of children, women, and men who have been extinguished through the persecution, especially as we remember the cruel manner in which so many lights have been extinguished this past week and several years of war in Afghanistan. 
We acknowledge that the hope for our sisters and brothers in Afghanistan is fading quickly as a family and people stand beside an airport runway for a flight that will never come. Flee to mountains to escape torture and death at the hand of the Taliban. And so during the next few moments as we close worship, I'm going to be guiding us in prayer sentences. At the end of each petition that I offer, I will invite you to respond, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. I'll then pause for a moment of silence between each petition. That silence represents today the deafening silence felt by the voices of justice and mercy that will no longer hear about the hope of lifting up women and young girls to learn to read and be productive members of society and fulfill their rightful place in a community. The voices of children, women, and men that have been silenced by brutal execution. Let us pray. God of all creation, we come to you with broken hearts at the profound evil that we see in Afghanistan. We cry out for justice and mercy for the Afghan people who are experiencing violence at the hands of the Taliban. O God, raise up leaders who will exercise their power to protect the innocent and cultivate community. Move, O God, among the mighty military powers that so conveniently and quickly pulled out a place that they have been committed to. Move in their hearts to protect those who cannot protect themselves from evil atrocities. Both in Afghanistan and around the world. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We pray especially for girls and women who are losing human rights at the hand of the Taliban. May your Holy Spirit guide them to hide safely as you guided Moses' mother to place him amongst the reeds, as you guided Joseph and Mary to flee from Egypt. In your care and power of Holy Spirit, O God, hide the innocent in the cliffs and caves of hillsides. Feed them like you did your people in the wilderness with manna and quench their thirst like you did your people by bringing water from a rock. And, O God, raise up in our international community a disgust for what is happening and a desire to intervene to provide care, love, support, and food for all. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. We pray for the persecuted church in Afghanistan and those being targeted for their faith in Christ. As you were with the early church believers that were persecuted and have been throughout the ages, be now with our sisters and brothers in Christ in the lands of Afghanistan and around the world. O God, who has always been with your people, be with them now to protect the children, the women and the men from the evils that persist. As you were with Joseph in the well, having been betrayed by his brothers, be with them now as they are betrayed by friendships and countries, even our own. As you were with the people in exile, guiding them into the wilderness, be with them now as they wander. Be their hope. Be their strength. As you were with the brokenhearted exiles who could no longer sing the songs of Yahweh in a foreign land, 
because they were overcome by their grief and loss, be with them now as family members watch the execution of their loved ones and do not know what each day or even hour brings. Oh God, as you've always been with your people, we beg you, especially be now with our brothers and sisters and the children of Afghanistan. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Oh God, would you heal the loss of sisters, mothers and daughters, brothers, fathers and sons of all nationalities who fight against the evil of the Taliban in Afghanistan. Would you bring your peace to the troubled hearts whose physical and emotional wounds remain, women and men of all nationalities who sacrifice for a greater good and leave a hope that seems to be wiped away suddenly by a careless act in failed leadership. Forgive us, O God, for leaving others when we make commitments to them. Forgive our leaders for their failure and convict them to stand with renewed commitment across the lines of different nationalities of people to whom our nation and others made promises. And forgive us, O God, for thinking that we can somehow find absolution by walking away from those commitments and leaving others to pay the price with their very lives for what we said we would do together. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. God of wisdom, we ask that you inspire our president, vice president, and appointed secretaries and officials to choose to protect those who cannot protect themselves. And move in the hearts of the leaders of the free world to be more responsive to you. And when they are not, O oh God, would you shake the earth with an earthquake to protect the innocent as you did Paul and Silas while in prison. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. God of transformation and change, we beg, we beg you for Damascus Road moments for individuals within the Taliban. Just as you blinded Saul and transformed his life, blind the evil that is controlling the hearts and minds of men who are killing others. Change their lives. But if their lives aren't going to be changed, would you blind them to the innocent children, women, and men in their path? And, O oh Christ, you call us to pray for our enemies, and this is a difficult thing to do. But we pray for them and those whom they persecute. We ask that they would be healed of their hurt that's causing them to act in violence and to recognize that all blood runs red with the human race. Heal their hearts and change them, for this is truly, O oh God, something that only you can do. We pray for the peace of Afghanistan and the peace of our world the safety of all innocence in the girls, the boys, the teenagers, the women, and the men of Afghanistan. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers.